0: Eavesdropping on Godly Counsel is is a series that we began last week as we look at the book of 1 Timothy. And as Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a younger pastor, he is saying to him, in essence, I'm writing this so you will know how to fight the good fight. I think for all of us, we would like to fight the good fight in life. We would like to come to the end of our journey on this planet and say we have done the very best that we can. And last week we took a couple of minutes just to look at the historical context because I think it's important for us to recognize how this book fits into the grand scheme of what God's word says to us. We looked at the, the reminder that during the very first missionary journey, that's when Paul and Barnabas left and they went out to share the gospel, to extend the gospel. Remember, Jesus said, You're to be my, my witnesses to the very end of the world, into the earth. And uh, so then he went out with Barnabas and they led in a revival service at Lister. We find that in Acts chapter 14. Just we bracketed that to say it was. Was at that ri- revival service in Acts 14 that Timothy probably became a Christian, and we just bracket that. And then we have the second missionary journey, which Paul goes back, and he's going to churches that he's already established, plus other places to to establish churches. And as he's going out, they go back through uh, that area, and they meet Timothy, who became a Christian the last time that they were there. They're looking for a replacement. To join in their missionary team and so they bring him along and so timothy becomes a part of paul and silas as they go out and share the gospel in the world and while they were out on their missionary enterprises they came to a city known as ephesus timothy wasn't there paul was there by himself timothy is timothy is used by by paul in a lot of ways to meet the needs of a lot of churches but they came to ephesus paul was fourth largest city in the world at the time 250,000 people major seaport economic driver of the roman empire and it had this enormous temple it was called the temple of artemis or diana fertility goddess but that was just one of many there were over 50 different gods and goddesses that the people worshiped there and so paul establishes this church there as a beachhead for evangelism and missions throughout the world because literally people would come to ephesus it was a crossroads people would come by sea and land from all over the world and paul thought if we could plant a church there a healthy church as people would come it would have influence literally to the ends of the earth but ephesus was a very debased city uh, as I said last week, it was a mixture of Hollywood and Wall Street and the Las, Las Vegas uh, Strip and French Quarter. All of that rolled into one. And they did all kinds of just perverse things there. And as Paul goes there, he begins to lecture. It's really a lecture. I mean, he's, he's teaching people about Jesus. A riot breaks out, miracles break out. In the midst of that, God establishes a church that we read about in Acts chapter 19. As you think about that, he establishes his church at Ephesus about two decades after Jesus had been resurrected. Okay, we got that? So Ephesus is established about two decades after Jesus is resurrected. And then, about an, almost a decade later, Paul would write Ephesians. How many of you would say that Ephesians is one of your favorite books of the Bible? Yeah, you know, a bunch of us. It's a, it's a powerful book. Talks about ecclesiology, which we addressed a few weeks ago. Talks about belief in God, belief in church, and how our faith is to operate. And as he writes this letter, everything is going well. In fact, in Ephesians 1.16, he says, "I, I can't stop giving thanks to God for who you are. You're doing such a great job. Ephesus was Paul's great success story of how the church was going. So between him establishing the church and then writing the book of Ephesians, in between there paul is going back to jerusalem and he stops off and he calls for the elders of ephesus to meet him at the beach and as they're praying together and they're all thinking they'll never see him again paul gives them a very specific warning he tells them we read about this in acts chapter 20 as he's talking to them he says you need to be very careful because wolves will come from the with from within the church false teachers teaching you things that will cause you to think wrongly. He's giving them this warning. But it doesn't materialize because we see just a few years later when he writes that letter to the book of Ephesians, everything is going well. But within just a few brief years, the wheels start coming off. That's why as as Austin was reading the, the introduction here, Paul uniquely starts this letter not by giving thanks. You read through all these different letters of Paul when he's writing to individuals and to churches, and he usually says, I can't stop thanking God for you. But when he is writing to Timothy about the church at Ephesus, he jumps right to the point and begins to express his concern. That's why we have the book of 1 Timothy. There were problems in the church at Ephesus. So that's a little bit of the backstory we want to go back today and remember the theme and the concern okay this is the theme of the book but it's also the concern that causes paul to write that beliefs affect behavior first timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 15 he says i'm writing so that you may know how to behave our beliefs affect our behavior if you think you're a hammer everything will start looking like a nail what we believe affects our behavior and we live in a culture much like ephesus that thought you can believe anything that you want and it won't lead to chaos but anybody knows better than that richard dawkins many many of you are familiar with him world-renowned infamous atheist and now I don't want to speak ill of the man. He, he, is just, he has devoted his life to helping people move away from God because he feels like that is what we need to believe. In 2019, he wrote a book called Outgrowing God. And when I think about this man's life and those uh, who are opposed to God, my, my heart aches for them. I, I just think, how would you spend your one and only life rebelling against God so openly and encouraging others to do the same thing? And in his book, Outgrowing God, as if you you get smart enough or mature enough, you will outgrow God. Like God is some immature concept. In his book, Outgrowing God, he speaks to this whole idea that our beliefs affect our behavior. He says, whether irrational or not, it does unfortunately seem plausible if somebody sincerely believes God is watching every move, he might be more likely to be good. He says, I hate this idea. I want to believe that humans are better than that. I'd like to believe I'm honest whether anyone is watching or not. What is he saying? He's saying, well, you believe affects. Because what he's speaking of in the book, he's relating to studies that show that people who believe, have a, have a religious belief, behave better than those who don't. Why are so many Walmart stores closing across America? because of the robbery that's taking place there. I mean, it's not just people grabbing a few things, it's organized groups going in, and they believe they will not get caught, that nobody's really watching, and even if they are, it doesn't matter. So that belief drives their behavior to go in and steal, and consequently, in a number of communities across the country, Walmart are shutting down shop. They're closing their stores. It's a reminder that our beliefs drive our behavior in the church, in our individual lives, outside of the church, and corporately as a nation. Stephen Covey was the one who wisely noted, I'm not a product of my circumstances. That's a message that we get today. We're products of our circumstances, i.e., thus, I'm a victim if things don't work well. He says, I am a product of my decisions my beliefs guide direct affect my behavior and what satan wants to do is he wants to distort our beliefs about god he wants to plant seeds of doubt that get us thinking in a different direction that's exactly what happened in the garden of eden what did satan do for adam and eve It caused them to begin to question their belief about God, and when their belief about God was questioned and it became doubtful, it what? Affected their behavior. Had their beliefs not changed, their behavior would not have changed. And that's why Paul is writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, because they have gone from being a church that is following accurately What god's word teaches they're following good solid beliefs to moving to beliefs that have changed their behavior in very negative ways as we will see here now if you were here last month i addressed the issue of ecclesiology what we believe about church and i said most americans suffer from bad ecclesiology yes we have indigestion yes we have cholesterol yes we have lots of issues But we suffer from bad ecclesiology, meaning that our beliefs about the church have affected the way the church operates and consequently affected the church's usefulness and softfulness in the kingdom of God and in culture. And so we may have a bad belief about the church and about God, and that affects other people. It's like dropping a pebble in a pond. It has a rippling effect. You see, even when things go well, caution must prevail. And things were going well in Ephesus for a number of years. And that's why Paul, when he was standing on the beach with the elders from Ephesus, with no known knowledge of any problems, because he would later write the book of Ephesians saying, you guys are doing great. He would say, caution must prevail even when things are going well. Some of you have been around long enough to know some of the history. Uh, Some of you think I'm just a dinosaur that's always been here, but I did have another life. I was a pastor. Michelle and I were over in Houston for 10 and a half years where I was the pastor of Gulf Meadows Baptist Church. And it was a very small church. Uh, We started there with fewer than 70 people in attendance, and 10 and a half years, and it had only gotten to about 150 in attendance. It was, it was a small church. But for the most part, it was a pretty healthy church. And we gave our lives there for 10 and a half years, trying to speak truth, trying to lead well. I, w- I was young. I made so many mistakes. But as a church, we, we held together, and, and we weren't just surviving. We were, we were trying to move in the right direction in the kingdom of God. And in 1998, we felt like God was calling us to come and be the pastor of Westgate. Two years later, the church that we had given our lives to for 10 and a half years imploded. There are no reunions for Michelle and I to go back to at Gulf Meadows Baptist Church. It doesn't exist anymore. Within two years of leaving... That's not to say we were what held it together, by no means. It's just when we left, things were going okay. And within two years, the leadership, and it wasn't somebody coming from the outside, it was within, and the church imploded and ceased to exist. So as we think about 1 Timothy and we think, does it really relate to me? Yes, it relates to all of us. Because a church may not implode, but our lives may implode our families may implode if our beliefs move in the wrong direction so that's why paul is writing and and we get to listen in we're eavesdropping on godly counsel and so today we come to verses uh, three and following and as austin did so well earlier let me just repeat a little bit of this Paul says, I urge you when I went into Macedonia to stay in Ephesus. What Paul is saying to Timothy, the word that he uses there is, I want you to take up residence there. This is part of Paul's calling Timothy to become the pastor of Ephesus, to say that the leadership there needs very strong guidance. So I want you to take up residence there so that you may command certain people. That's the way it works in a church. It's not everybody jumps on the bandwagon to say, let's go south. It's a certain, it's it's usually a certain group of people. Oftentimes a very small number of people. Happens in churches, it happens in businesses, it happens in communities, it happens even in government and business. Small group of people teach them not to teach false doctrines any longer. So things have begun to change. The, The warning that he gave in Acts chapter 20 about wolves coming in, it was starting to unfold. And here's how he says he explains what they do. They themselves are teaching myths and endless genealogy. So what they're doing is they're filling in the blanks in Scripture. So whatever is not said there, they began to add to that. And we're going to see the two things that we need to be guarded against is adding to Scripture and subtracting from Scripture. And what they're doing is they are creating myths. They're adding to Scripture and making up stories and endless genealogies. Now, how many of you would say that one of your favorite verses in the Bible comes from a genealogy? Okay, can we be real honest? How many of you, when you're reading the Bible and you check it off that you've read the Bible that day, skim through the genealogies. <laughs> I skim them, I, I skim them, but I'm always trying to see, is there something in there? Well, what they would do is they would take the genealogies. And they would go from that, and they would net out a whole story about it, and then that would lead to a doctrine that they would teach, and they're like maybe five stations away from Scripture. And they would use that to teach ideas and thoughts that they would have. And Paul says when that happens, when people move away from Scripture, when we move away from Scripture and we don't allow it to be our guide, when we start adding to Scripture— when we add our own commentary to it and say this is dogma and this is doctrine, it says that promotes controversial speculations. It creates arguments. Someone brave enough to say, I never saw that in scripture. I don't know that that's true. Well, you're just not as informed as I am because it says down here that they speak it with such confidence, but they don't know what they're talking about. Kind of like men driving. Always confident, Sometimes right. And so they're speaking as if they know exactly what's happening, but they don't know what they're talking about. And it says, this isn't advancing God's work. What's the goal of Scripture, it says? That we would have love flowing from a pure heart. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 8? Blessed are the pure in heart. Those whose heart seeks after God, they will be the ones who see God. It's a heart that is devoted to God. And a good conscience. Now, when we read that from the 21st Western mindset, we say, okay, is my conscience clear? Am I okay with how I'm thinking about this? Not the word here, not the idea that Paul used in this context. Back in this time, the idea was that a good conscience meant that you are in good standing with the community, i.e. the community of faith, that your behavior measured up to what other people in your community of faith would agree is good behavior. So we can, we can have a clear conscience. I mean, there are people sitting in prison that have killed someone, and they have a clear conscience. You can have a clear conscience and be wrong. That's why Paul would say, I don't depend upon my conscience. Because my conscience might be lying. And so he says, when we are following the commands of God, our hearts will be pure. We will have a conscience that's not only clean individually, but it'll be clean corporately. And it will lead to sincere faith, authentic faith. It's not diluted. It's not polluted. It's not watered down. Sincere, authentic faith. And he says, some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. So, the danger point that Paul is addressing here, that we all need to hear, because we are living in a culture even now in which there is addition to Scripture. Yes, we have Scripture, but I have this new revelation that we need to pay attention to. What is the guardrail? Paul is establishing guardrails for a healthy church, healthy life, healthy families. Don't add to Scripture. God has given us his revealed word, and that's enough. The sufficiency of Scripture is a doctrine that we must embrace to believe that this is enough. A month ago, I used this phrase that I think is helpful for all of us. Scripture is what we use to write, W-R-I-T-E, and R-I-G-H-T. Scripture is what we use to write and write the script of our lives as we use scripture it will write the script of our lives and guide us and it will write us when we are moving in the wrong direction it will correct us and that's why paul said all scripture is profitable for teaching reproof for correction to guide us in the right way see god's word god's word helps us to establish the boundaries to know the difference between good And evil, and that's why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 14, would say, what is maturity of your faith? It's to know the difference between right and wrong, which Scripture teaches, and then to do what is right. It's not enough to know just the difference between right and wrong, and a lot of people are not even there yet, but it's knowing the difference between right and wrong, and then doing what is right. We've been reading through the book of Romans in the daily Bible reading calendar, and Paul in there declares that the law helps us. So what he's talking about here. God's word, the law, helps us to recognize sin. And he uses an example. He says, I wouldn't have known that coveting was wrong if the law didn't say don't covet. It's kind of like speed signs. You know, you're driving down Dallin here. Just for anybody that you don't yet know this, once you pass Gladys, the speed limit is 45 and if i'm behind you i'll remind you of that it's 45 there's only one sign there it's kind of hidden behind the bushes and you won't see another one the rest of Dallin. but it's 45 the whole way okay just just in case you're wondering but if you don't see that sign you don't know what the law says but if you see that sign you know what the law is and then if you go over 45 what do you know you're breaking the law But if you don't see the sign, you don't know that you're breaking the law. It's like the tax codes. You know, you feel, do the turbo tax. It's like, yeah, it looks good to me. But there are tax codes. And if you don't know the tax codes, you might do it wrong. But once you know the tax code and then you do it wrong, then you know that you're, well, you might get prosecuted. And so what Paul is reminding us here is the law helps us to see that we have broken the law, that we cannot make it on our own, we are guilty, and only Christ can produce what we can't. That's the advantage of Scripture. It reminds us that we cannot do it on our own. One last example on that. Let's just say that our federal government had a really big change. It wouldn't be much of a change, but a little bit of a change, in which they said, everything you own belongs to the government you give us everything that you have a hundred percent of what you have and then we expect you to survive and thrive all on your own without depending on anyone else if that law came down what would we all know it would be impossible for us to obey we couldn't do it that's what the law is for that's what God, word, God's word teaches us, reminds us of our great need for God. So guardrail number one for truth is don't add to scripture. Guardrail number two, don't subtract from scripture. Verse 80 says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly as we just described. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers, rebellious, re- those in rebellion the ungodly, and here's a very interesting thing. I hope you're following along. It's 1843, I think, in the Pew Bible, or I hope you have your Bible open. Uh, We're we're getting close to being finished, but I want you to see here that what Paul does is a very interesting comparison. The list that he is about to give is going to correlate with the Ten Commandments, and you read this list, and you say, "Oh, I wouldn't have seen that. But commentators believe he is literally going down the list of the Ten Commandments as he gives this list in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verses 8 and following. He says, starting in verse 9, he says, "...the unholy and irreligious, those who are ungodly and sinful." And we want—I don't have time to do this, but if you took each one of those words that he uses and you broke it down in contrast to the first four commandments talking about a relationship with God, they all fit right in there. And then he shifts to the remainder of the Ten Commandments, and he says, for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers, and he's just going down the list of the Ten Commandments. And here's the one that really probably trips up. I, I don't think any of you are out to kill your parents today, right? So we can move on. But when he gets to verse 10 he really resonates with our culture and it resonated so much with the ephesian culture because we have nothing in american culture over the culture at ephesus and he says for the sexually immoral for those practicing homosexuality and we say how in the world does that relate to the seventh commandment of not committing adultery because here's the bottom line and it's so hard for our culture to seem to get this is that anything, any sexual activity outside of marriage is sinful. It can even be sinful inside of marriage if abuse is taking place. But the bottom line of what he's saying is, it's not that hard. Ephesus, a big part of their economy was driven by the fact that Diana was a fertility goddess— so you can only imagine what their worship was like. They didn't sing songs like us. And so he is saying to them, it's so simple what God has said. Sex in marriage, that's the only way it's sacred, period. And, you, and I want you to be aware of this just because of the culture in which we live. He says, those practicing homosexuality, there have been so many that have twisted this around and they've talked about it how it applies in just certain ways. And the way that it's written in the original language is to say, two men behaving like a married couple. Two men behaving like a married couple. And he is saying, he's not saying those who are homosexuals, those who practice homosexuality. See, again, beliefs, Affect behavior. I feel bad for a culture that says you are this, homosexual. You practice homosexuality, but by God's grace, in which Paul would write many times, we can all be changed and we don't need to hardwire certain sins as worse than others, but I wanted to just park here for a second because our culture faces this, and churches face this. When we were up visiting our kids in D.C., and we would walk everywhere. And as you would walk, street after street after street, great historic churches who have long since abandoned sound doctrine. Rainbow flags flying. And their cause is something very different than what Scripture says. Slave traders, those are the ones who abuse other people. They take away, they steal from other people. Liars and perjurers. Scripture tells us to be honest. And then he summarizes it all in one setting here. And he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, that's such an important word for us to hear. Sound doctrine means that which leads. The word sound there literally means that which leads to life and health. And so what we have in Scripture is something that leads to health and life. So oftentimes we hear that just get rid of this and you will find the joy that you're looking for in life. But God's Word is given to us to give us life. In tomorrow's reading, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we encounter the fallout of what happened with David and Bathsheba's sin. And we see in 2 Samuel chapter 12, when Nathan comes to confront him, 2 Samuel 12, 9, he says, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing this evil thing? We despise the word of God when we subtract from it and believe that we're over it and it doesn't apply to us, that we can do immoral things. We've subtracted from God's law. We said, that doesn't count anymore. That doesn't count anymore. I can do what I want. Does that make sense? And that leads to total disaster. Disaster. You may have read about the former mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio and his wife. Sherlane is her name. Back in July they had an interview New York Times and they described how they were changing their marriage. And that they are not divorcing but they're going to be living in the same house together but they're both going to be dating other people. So they're not divorcing and they're not separating from the house, they're just going to start dating other people. And my heart breaks for people that think like that because I think that is not... And and listen to what she said, his wife. She said, I just want to have fun. That's why they're doing this. Do any of us as Christians believe that that's going to lead to fun? Maybe for a season, but it's really going to be a recipe for heartache, misery, and disaster contrary to god's word leads to that maybe fun for a moment that's what the writer of hebrews said pleasurable for a moment yes as christians we need to quit thinking that sin can't be fun it can be really fun for a little while until the consequences begin to roll in god's word was given so that we might have joy in life and just a couple of words that we're going to see throughout this book that remind us of the danger of all this these are words that paul uses to describe what happens when you have bad doctrine that affects the way that you live. He uses words like shipwrecked in chapter one, verse 19. Departing from the faith means that you're abandoning it. Strayed, wandered, swerved. So those are the guardrails. Don't add to scripture, don't subtract from scripture. And the safeguard for this truth of that not happening is the church, the church universal and the local church. The church universal does not change its beliefs, but local churches contribute to that as we have seen time and time again. And that's why he says in verse 11, this gospel, what is the gospel? I've tried to clarify that because I think you hear that so many times. We have no idea what it means. What is the gospel? The gospel literally means good news. So every time you see the gospel in there, it means this, basically. This is how I try to summarize it. So we have a handle on this. We don't just hear, oh, the gospel. The gospel says it. The gospel is this. God has a plan to rescue us from our sin. That means to rescue us from the power of sin in our lives and the penalty of sin of what occurs after we die. God has a plan, and we need to be rescued And why is that good news? It only becomes good news when we understand the bad news. MD Anderson is a very nice place to know about. But it only becomes great news if you've received a diagnosis of life-threatening cancer. You see the difference? If you're fine and you don't have any problems, it's nice to know about MD Anderson. I'm glad it's there. I celebrate that other people find help there. See how that sounds like religion, faith? glad it works for them. But once you have life-threatening cancer, all of a sudden, MD Anderson becomes great news. And that's what Paul is talking about here. So once we understand the good news that God has a plan to rescue us from the power and penalty of sin, it's great news. Andrew Peterson, we just just sang that song. Uh, He wrote, is he worthy? He made this statement. Every day that we're given is like a brick and we get to choose whether or not that brick goes into building god's kingdom or our own and our beliefs will dictate that behavior our beliefs will dictate the brick of a day will either go to building the kingdom of god because we believe that's most important or we'll believe we'll believe to believe we'll believe and behave to build our own friends we have great news to share And that's why I end each message. And I tell you what, I'm ashamed of myself that yesterday I was at a small funeral and I did not do this. Yesterday was a very palpable day for me. Not only that, but another encounter in which I did not share the gospel of Jesus Christ that God has a plan to rescue us from our sin. And I'm ashamed and I'm remorseful and I'm repentant of it. Because we need to communicate to the world that God loves us and he's created us to have a relationship with him. That's why we are here. We have all kinds of different jobs, and you guys do great at your jobs, but our primary purpose is to have a relationship with God. But because of our sin, we are separated from God our rebellion, our choice to add to and subtract from God's word and make it what we want it to be about in our quest to just have some fun. And here's the sad reality about all of that. We can be so deceived. Here's a heartache of yesterday for me. We can be so deceived believing that we are okay with God. I'm okay with God. Friends, that's not the question is god okay with us and god doesn't become okay with us until we receive his forgiveness through the sacrifice of jesus christ so we can walk around and say i'm okay with god but we may be very unokay with god is god okay with us how do we become okay with god by repenting of our sins to say, God, I value you more than my sin. Repent, I'm turning away from my sin. I'm asking you to be my Lord and Savior. Will you in your mercy forgive me of my sins and I fully surrender my life to you. If you find yourself in that position today where you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never received your forgiveness from Christ, I need to say this because I didn't. You're not okay with God. You're only okay with God if you have been forgiven of your sins through Jesus Christ. So I want to lead us in a prayer to that end. If you're not yet a Christian listening online or here in the room, I would encourage you to voice a prayer similar to this. And for all of us as Christians, would we just take the good news that we have and make it truly great news in our lives? Father, we thank you that... You give us such strategic guidelines in your word we think of paul being so distraught about a church that had gone astray writing these words to give correction and we we hear them today knowing that no matter how well things are going caution must always prevail sound doctrine must prevail and at the very core of that is the doctrine of salvation through jesus christ Lord, I recognize that today there may be someone here that has never received you as Lord and Savior. I pray that your spirit would help them to know that they are not okay with you, no matter what someone has said. We can only become okay with you by voicing a prayer similar to this. From a heart that is truly sincere and desirous, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have, and I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. Lord, for any of my friends that have voiced that prayer, may they recognize that as the beginning point of a relationship with you, the starting point. And may they truly follow hard after you every day of their life. For those of us that are already Christians, God, might we see the desperate nature of how important it is to believe correctly because it affects the way that we live. We will soon walk out of this building and we will see land that is parched and dry. We drink water that tastes nasty because of the situation that we're in. We pray for rain so obvious to us that we need rain. And we pray for that, but Lord, more than anything, help us to see our lives are like that ground. And we desperately need your grace to rain into our lives, awakening to come down. Pray, Lord, that you would rain your revival fire upon us. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Love you all. Thanks for listening. And uh, we're going to go ahead and take the Lord's Supper. I know we're running a little bit behind, but I pray that God will just reset your timer for a minute and our deacons will make their way to the front and that as you guys get down here, begin to prepare the elements to distribute those. And uh, just a little housekeeping here. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, just as we talked about, and you've been baptized as a demonstration of your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, then we invite you to join us here. You do not have to be a member of Westgate to participate, but you do need to be a Christian who professes faith in Christ, who has been baptized, and you're not living in unrepentant sin. You're not saying, this is something I'm just going to hang on to. You are trying to be repentant before Christ. Then we invite you to join in. And For all of us, this is such a sacred moment. May we take some time to just pray and say, God, we, we do pray that you would just rain down upon us. Revival in my heart, my life, and our church and community. Guys, you just go ahead and begin to pass those out. Take some time. Is the gospel truly great news or is it just some news? Jesus Christ died to redeem us from the power and the penalty of sin, and that's what we celebrate participation of these elements. Bill, would you voice our prayer? No right to come before you and to come to your table except for the blood and the body of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that you made for us because of your great love for us. Father, I pray that right now before we take the juice and the bread. Lord, help us to just sweep the dust and the cobwebs out of our heart. Uh, Give us a renewed and a refreshed spirit uh, for loving you and for loving those that you put around us. Lord, forgive us of our sins. Lord, we just thank you for your love. In Jesus' name I pray. As we prepare to take the bread, you will find that in the second cup underneath. Um, We had someone not find that the last time we did that, so it's just in the second cup underneath. You will find the bread. It says, as Paul was writing to the young Christians at Corinth, he said that he took bread, Jesus took bread, and when he gave him thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When you see the word gospel time and time and time again throughout scripture, I may not be saying it as eloquently as some others have, but I hope that you will always know that the gospel is that God has a plan to rescue us from our sin, and this is his plan through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and that's why the Lord would say, this cup is a new covenant. This cup is the plan. It's in my blood. So do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Would you stand together, join your hearts and your hands. I just want to voice a prayer blessing over you before we're dismissed. God, we humbly come before you recognizing that what we have just done is a reminder that you do have a plan to rescue us from our sin. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to leave this place with a celebration in our heart for what you have done with gratitude, the outpouring of your sacrificial gift to redeem us from our sins and to save us and to give us the power to live victoriously over sin. So as this congregation leaves this place and goes into the world, may your favor and blessing be upon each one. They may know of your amazing love that you have for each one. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You're dismissed. As you're dismissed children, you're having children's choir until one o'clock in the worship center and also stop by the hearts for inmates table out in the atrium. God bless you.